I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light on Light Through, episode 102, a conversation with John Glenn. That's right. Now, as some of you may know, Michael Waltermoth and I have been putting together an anthology of essays and science fiction stories exploring the relationship of space travel and religion. It's called Touching the Face of the Cosmos. And the thesis of this anthology is if you look at the history of human beings and our attempts to get off this planet and out into space, they've basically been motivated by three things. First, military motivations. That's what motivated the Nazis to develop the V-2 rocket at the end of World War II. That's what motivated the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 1960s, and it's still with us today to some extent. Next, there was and still is the scientific motivation, and most people realize that we can learn much more about this universe and about this earth by getting off this planet. And third, there's been a commercial motivation. You see this with Richard Branson and his Virgin Airlines attempt to develop literally a passenger service which would bring people as tourists out into space. But let's face it, when you look at what all of those motivations have led to, they did get us off this planet, they did get us to the moon, but human beings have not yet walked on Mars or really been in any place in this solar system, let alone the galaxy. That is, human beings with their bodies, any place except the moon. And it occurred to me about 10 years ago that maybe one of the reasons, one of the things that's been missing in space exploration has been a connection to a much deeper motive in many ways than even science. And for want of a better word, we could call this motive spiritual. It's what all the major religions try to do when they're operating at their best. And that's providing some guidance as to who we are in this universe, what we're doing here in this cosmos. And I think it's crystal clear that we're never going to get much further than we've been in understanding that from our vantage point down here on planet Earth. We need to get out there into the galaxy, into the cosmos. Even then, we're just not going to get the answers immediately But I think we have a better chance of understanding these deepest spiritual issues, the true meaning of life, once we get beyond this planet. So our anthology, Touching the Face of the Cosmos, hopes to ignite a greater interest in that, and even perhaps to get some of the major religions to help fund space travel. Who knows? The sky is literally the limit. Now we've been very fortunate in getting some enormously intelligent people to contribute their thoughts to this anthology. 
including, for example, Guy Consolmagno, who is known as the Pope's astronomer. He's actually president of the Vatican Observatory. And he has written a wonderful essay. And a lot of other people as well. And as I mentioned, some leading science fiction writers. So look for this anthology to be published in early November, later this year. But to get back to this podcast... A few days ago, on July 30th, I was enormously fortunate to have a chance to interview John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth back in 1962, who went up again for a much longer period of time as a payload specialist on a shuttle at the end of the 1990s. He's the only person to have done anything even remotely like that. And I got a chance to talk to former Senator Glenn and his wife, Annie, at their offices in the John Glenn College at Ohio State University. And I want to thank Joel Iskowitz for helping to set this up. Joel Iskowitz is an eminent artist who's who's drawn some beautiful portraits of John Glenn. And also Adam Sakowitz and Peter Booker, who helped set up this interview. And the interview, a transcript of the interview, will be published in the Touching the Face of the Cosmos anthology. But I thought as a little treat for everyone, I would provide this podcast of the interview, most of the interview anyway, some 30 minutes of the conversation I had with John Glenn. Now you'll hear John Glenn. You'll hear his wife, Annie, Glenn. You'll hear me. You'll hear Adam Sakowitz. And you'll hear Representative Michael Sheehy, who was also in the room. He's a state representative in Ohio. So you know what my voice sounds like. You'll be able to see and hear immediately what John Glenn's voice sounds like. In fact, he'll be the first voice you'll hear in the interview. And then you'll later hear Adam Sakowitz ask some questions, and you'll hear Annie Glenn talk as well, and then Michael Sheehy, and then all of us talking together. One final thing, this interview, I was delighted to say, is a very wide-ranging interview, not only looking at the intersection of religion and space travel, but, for example, getting the reaction of the Glens to how they were treated in various motion pictures and television shows. So I think you'll enjoy this. And the interview begins with John Glenn talking about how he came to get his religion. Uh, going to space just strengthened to, to see everything, see what, what we're, we're part of as part of, you know, part of creation and then to see whole nations and oceans and so on at a, at a, at a, a single glance. Uh, that just strengthened my beliefs. It didn't, it didn't, that's not where they came from. They, right. It just strengthened the beliefs I already had. Well, that makes sense. One of, the, one of the things that I've been looking into are what it has motivated uh, we Earthlings to get off this planet. 
and th there's been military motivation, and mm -hmm. you, you, of course, were part of that even before the space program. Mm -hmm. There's scientific motivation, you've been part of that as well. And more recently, there's been commercial motivation. But one of the things that struck me as being missing from that is almost a spiritual or religious motivation. And and even though you had religious views well before you went yeah. out into space, uh, it seems to me that one of the reasons why we haven't gotten out into space much further than the moon, which you know happened in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, is because it's been missing the spiritual aspect. And uh, I wonder what your thinking is about that. Would you like to see, you know, churches, religious institutions, along with governments and private enterprise, more involved in space exploration? Oh, I think that uh, I think that'll come as people go to different places in space, and I think we take our religious faith with us wherever we go. And the same is true going into space. And that'll be true whether we go to Mars or Pluto or where we, we may wind up eventually going. I'm sure that once we, we uh, get there that our religious faith and belief or beliefs uh, will not uh, be altered except for maybe, maybe we'll appreciate the enormity of it all uh, more than we ever did before. Some people see a conflict between science and religion. Uh, for example, fundamentalists occasionally deny evolution. Uh, the church persecuted Galileo, although one of the contributors to this anthology is uh, Guy Consolmagno, who's the Pope's astronomer. So, what do you think about religion versus science? Do you see that they have common ground and they have shared goals? Well, they're complementary. I don't see them as competitive at all. I think they're complementary. The more you know about things, the more you appreciate, and the more it strengthens our religious beliefs. When you went into space for the first time, did it change you as far as what you thought about the universe and the human place in the universe? No, not really. You already ha had a feeling of... I already had a feeling. I've, I've done a lot of study of the, the uh, of space and our solar system. And, and uh, so it didn't really change my, my views of that at all. Uh, I think some people, you know, they... In, and looking at it, they want you to, and, you know, there I was in space and I saw the face of God or something like that, and that's just not, that's not the way it was at all with me. You, you saw the universe as it was, and but that, in a sense, was still a spiritual experience. Well, it's, it's a, an experience, yeah, that backs up a religious faith. Doesn't, re doesn't replace it. And didn't start it, didn't stop it, it just it, it strengthens it. Are you optimistic uh, that our species will get out into space? There have been civilizations like the Chinese, for example, they invented the printing press, 
but they never had newspapers. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Aztecs invented the wheel, but they just used it as a toy. Uh, you know, we've gotten out into space, but it hasn't been as much as many people would want. So what do you think of the future? Is there hope for us getting off this planet and establish, establishing a space? Well, yeah, eventually. I've, I've, my take on the on how far we go in space, I'm a little disappointed we haven't gone farther than we have in this interim period since I was up there. But uh, it's a, uh, uh, I think that uh, we are encouraged to go further into space the more we learn things that are of value and benefit to us right here on Earth. And uh, that's the, the uh, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of research up there right now on the International Space Station, a lot of great research. Now that hasn't taken us clear out to Mars or anything like that, but uh, I think just to go to Mars just because it's there and, and say, uh, let's set a goal of going to Pluto, and do I think we'll do some of those things sometime? Yeah, I do. But I think it'll come because we were curious about the fact that uh, there, there may be some things with regard to the study of cancer right here on Earth or uh, research of some other kind that's a benefit to us right here that led us on out deeper into space. And uh, I don't think we go, we go, we don't go just to go, just to make a trip. But uh, we go because there may be some benefit to us right here on Earth. Can you speak about uh, your first flight into space in uh, February 1962? Um, you know, what did it feel like to go up there? Uh, what were you thinking? And what was the mood of the country at that point uh, with the space program and with the Mercury astronauts? Well, the, the main thing the country felt that we had been outdone by the, by the Soviets. And they had, uh, the Soviets had, uh, were uh, claiming that their system of government was superior to ours because they were better at research and better at at uh, technical matters, and they, they said they could prove that by the fact that uh, their their spacecraft were going into space successfully, while ours too often were blowing up on the launch pad, and uh, and they were right in that respect. And so I think our 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 country hoped and thought that we would they'd hoped that we would come back then and. And uh, that's what Project Mercury was all about, was to, was to show that, uh, that we were not be that far behind and that we, uh, we, we could be successful even where the, the uh, Soviets had not been successful, and that's what we proved. What did it feel like, you know, you were on the Mercury, the Atlas rocket, and like, just what were you feeling at that point, like when you went up to space in the capsule? <coughs> Well, there are a couple of answers. People ask often, "What, what does it feel like?" And and among the astronauts, there was sort of a standard joking answer. Uh, not not all that serious, but 
say uh, if you were they say how do you how do you how did you feel at launch well how do you think you'd feel if you knew you were on top of two million parts <laughs> built by the lowest bidder on a government contract? <laughs> but it's much more serious than that, and we were aware of our our efforts to try and come back from our our uh, being behind in the space race, as it was called, and uh, and we did. We came back and were able then to set our plans for the future. And, uh, and did that as a nation. And that's what I think uh, that resurgence of national pride in being able to do that was one of the main benefits that came out of the space program at that time. When we spoke last time, you talked about Ohio's role in aviation. And you spoke a little bit about this, but why do you think Ohio uh, became such a leader in aviation? The Wright brothers, uh, yourself, Neil Armstrong. So why do you think Ohio has that distinction? As being I don't know. I think uh, Ohio has a a uh, Ohio has been a stepping stone to the rest of the country in many respects, and uh, uh, this was a pathway through to to the uh, not only the Midwest but the Far West, and uh, people were looking for the new and uh, the unknown and, and they're doing a lot more research and and uh, opening up new farms and new areas of agriculture and and uh, it was a uh, 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 there is no one answer as to uh, why some of the technical things developed here I think I, I uh, credit much of it to the fact that uh, we had a good school system and so our kids were getting in this part of the country were getting a a uh, at least as good and maybe a superior education uh, to kids back east or in other parts of the country and uh, that led to uh, an interest in new things and we had the Wright brothers who were curious about whether we could fly and stuck with it and stuck with it and stuck with it and stuck with it and uh, uh, the uh, recent book that came out about the Wright brothers, I had a copy of that. That's a, I, mean, I can't read it because of my eyesight, but they have the uh, audio version of it that I thought was very, very good. Excellent. And it went through all of the, all of the, uh, uh, the, uh, many, many steps, hundreds, and in fact, even thousands of, of steps, incremental steps along the way that the Wright brothers took in, in finally developing the ability to fly. And uh, then they developed that capability. It wasn't just something where they, where they had a few successful flights and then turned, turned to other things. They stuck about making that ability to fly, making it better and better and better and better. And then a lot of the early flying was done in France, which I had, which was, is a surprise to most people. But uh, they did a lot of flying and development of their sustained flight uh, was done in France. And uh, uh, then it, it wasn't only, it wasn't just the uh, flying led to other uh, uh, scientific in inquisitiveness 
in, uh, in other areas also. And so uh, people all learned how to improve on, on uh, printing and, and uh, better transportation beside flying. And, uh, but they did, they did uh, expand in that area with some of their flights out of Huffman Prairie, out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and, and over in that area. So, uh, but as to why it developed the way it did, where there was the Wright brothers, and then I had the first orbital flight, and Neil went to the moon, and so on. I don't. I guess it was just a, a lucky, lucky circumstance for most of it. Uh, Miss Glenn, when Senator Glenn was serving overseas during the Second World War, the Korean War, and when he went into space in 1962 and 1998, you must have been very worried about him, and how did you deal with that? Because it's very difficult to deal with that. I mean, your husband, your loved one is in harm's way, so how were you able to deal and cope with that? Well, back then, we wrote letters to each other. Uh, he could mail his letters free because he was in the military. I, I would pay maybe, maybe uh, a, see, five cents or something like that to have my letters because we couldn't call each other. There weren't any TVs. I mean, now you can see it on TV and it's all live and you can call each other. But with the phone, way back then, there was no way that we could, we could, and he took me to different places where he was in training to help me understand what he was going to. I was I was by his side when he was beginning to fly. And uh, so he has really helped me a lot to go through life to, to uh, because life now is all alive. And you can, I mean, I'm sick and tired of hearing about war now because you see it on, on TV, but back then, I didn't know. I knew he was having, just by his letters, how many close calls he had. And uh, I've got my, matter of fact, all, all my letters are, are over here in uh, being archived. So uh, times have changed, and I have talked to uh, some of the families of military people now, and it's, it's I just feel sorry for him, because uh, not being able to see him and we were side by side anyway all the time is, was really tough. And Senator Glenn, that must have been very hard for you as well to be away from Annie for that long period of time. Well, I had, that's a problem everybody in the military had back then, didn't have it. instant communications where they could get on their t cell phone and call home or anything like that. It was a, you know, what we called V-mail. And uh, all V-mail went with it as a handwritten letter from overseas. And didn't even need a stamp. You just wrote your, wrote your name in the upper right-hand corner and that took care of it. Drop in the mail and away she went. But uh, when I was out in the middle of the Pacific and during World War II, that wasn't, uh, the cost was not the big deal, of course, at that time, but uh, we would, uh, if I wrote Annie a letter and asked a question or two, 
I didn't expect to get an answer back for maybe three weeks, possibly even four weeks. So, a, so communications has changed tremendously through the years. What do you see right now um, are the most important issues that are facing the country? Well, the economy, as, as usual. The economy. We set up a very unbalanced budget. And uh, we haven't learned to deal with that yet, although the, we did have a, the last two years of the Bill Clinton administration, the last two years uh, we actually were in surplus and we were paying down the national debt at that time. So, But uh, we're, we got away from that again. And we haven't... Uh, we haven't learned how to deal with the ISIS problem and the, the terrorism problem. If there was a uh, president or someone in Congress who said, I don't care if the budget is not balanced and I don't care if we go further into deficit because I want to allocate X number of billions of dollars for our effort in space, what would you say to that? Well, space isn't the only thing we have to consider here. Uh, we have so many other things in our society to consider. Space is just one. So I would not vote for some, something just because it eliminated everything else and, and sponsored space. Back in 1962, if you had to predict where we would be in space in 2015, would it be where we are now, or further ahead, or not as far? Oh, I thought we'd probably have moved out a little bit more than we have. But there was no way to predict that at that time anyway. And a lot of it depend on the, depended on the international competition. And so it's, a, uh, it's not something that you could have predicted back at that time. Can you talk a little bit about um, your flight in 1958 when you landed at Floyd Bennett Field in New York. Are you familiar with that? Um, I think that was like a sound barrier record that you had that year. Well, that was in 57, yeah. In July of 57. That set the, it was the first, uh, first crossing of the U.S. to average uh, better than supersonic speed. It was made in a plane that I had done some of the test work on, and so it was a natural, but uh, there was a lot more attention back in those days, competition between the services on setting records like that. There was a lot more attention paid to that than they do now. I guess mainly because the, the aircraft and now are, are so much superior to any aircraft we had back then that uh, you don't pay that much attention to it. What was the training like to become an astronaut? What kind of training did they put you through exactly? Well, it was a, about three years of training. It was in all sorts of things. A lot of it was academic, part of a little bit physical, some of it survival training. And uh, so it, it went on for, it was almost three years. Uh, three years before we ready to go, although 
we were ready to go at the end of about the second year, but uh, some of the equipment and the spacecraft itself had not been completed yet. So uh, uh, had to. So we were actually delayed by uh, equipment being fleshed out and tested and, and retested again. Were you uh, pleased with Ed Harris's portrayal of you in the, the Right Stuff movie? I never met Ed Harris. <laughs> you saw the movie though, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I didn't... Uh, didn't care for it. The book was excellent. Well, I thought, the, I thought uh, Tom Wolfe's book had a theme that ran through it that was pretty good. But uh, when Hollywood got hold of it and, <laughs> and uh, they started hamming it up and, and uh, making up things and sort of part of that movie was based in fact and a lot of it was based in fiction. <laughs> yeah. And John, John, John took a daughter and you see that one. Who didn't like it? The next movie on space. Can you help me on that? Well, you're talking about the Tom Hanks movie? You're talking about Apollo 13. Apollo 13. Yes, Apollo 13. That one was a wonderful movie. That one was really Well, that was pretty factual. Yeah. But it's the most factual of the space movies. Yeah. Because the one that that was about was our neighbor down... Oh, Jim Lowell. Yeah, yeah. Our neighbor. So, that was that was a good movie. So you knew the inside story, and, and the movie was true to that story. Yeah. Miss Glenn, are you familiar with the new book called The Astronauts' Wives Club? <laughs> it's a television series. And the television program? Yes, I was asked to be a part of that, and uh, I chose not to. <laughs> and uh, not only the book, but the movie too, because... Uh, uh, I, it's been nice to keep to be private too. Yeah, and sure. To, uh, to be interrupted like that. Uh, we have watched the last three evenings of it, and uh, no. I missed one that I'm sorry I missed because somebody saw it and one that played me sang at a church, and I used to sing at a church. And I didn't get to see that one. But uh, uh, John, we, um, if people are enjoying it, okay, I don't even have a book. Oh, it's not, uh, a it's like, like the movie, The Right Stuff. You take a, a tiny bit of fact and made a lot of fiction on it. And this is the problem with all uh, movies. There was a, a movie made of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and Robert Duvall played the role of Eisenhower. And I remember watching the movie, and I'm thinking, you know, Eisenhower was much more dynamic. He was a much better speaker than I remember him. But of course, that was Robert Duvall performing the role of Eisenhower. Yeah. Eisenhower but when you achieve a certain you know, level of fame in society, that's what inevitably uh, happens. I think the good news is the public knows the difference between the truth and, and the 
I question that. Have you seen the movie The King's Speech? Yes. We were visiting our son and his family out in the San Francisco area at Christmas time when that movie came out. And the one, the director of that movie is a stutterer. And uh, I wanted, our family wanted to go, really go to that movie. And we all came out of it, and the tears were just coming down our eyes because it was so real. Wow. It was very real. Yeah, it's a powerful movie. That's right. Mm -hmm. And whoever was who performed uh, that main role did a great job. Oh, Dennis. Yeah. Are you a movie writer? I do review movies and television. I'm, I'm, primarily, I'm a professor of communication and media studies. Uh, at Fordham University, but in, in my spare time, because I love movies and television, I review them. Well, the King's Speech is beautiful. No, I, I, I agree with you completely. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear you know, from some of the mothers of you know, when she speaks. Well, and the director of it is a star, and, and, and he won the Annie, too. That's right. And uh, so I'm glad you saw it. Yeah, I did. Now, you have to see it. <laughs> I do have to see it as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm teasing you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it is real. Because I knew that the king, I had read the king was a study. So I was really looking forward to seeing that movie. And yeah. yeah. And by the way, yesterday, um, I had to do this before I saw both of you. I went to. Uh, the boyhood home in uh, New Concord, and it's such a wonderful place, and I'm really glad that it's preserved for future generations. Oh. And just wanted to thank both of you for all you've done to preserve that and your support. Oh, it's such a remarkable uh, place. Well, I want to thank you for all you've done for humanity, seriously, yeah. because there, there are few people who've done a fraction of what you've done. Well, thank you. And, 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 and you know, people know that. Some amazing pictures here. Picture uh, seven. Now John asked our kids, so he told them about they asked our kids to name your uh, uh, your space your spacecraft. Well, they didn't, you know that, that thing of naming your craft sort of came from World War II when people named their aircraft or bomber or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then NASA finally decided if we wanted to put names on these, we'd be okay. And so the seven was in on all of them. But uh, I, I let my kids decide. I said the flight's probably going to get some international attention. And and what would you what would you like to be the message that we send to the rest of the world? Wow. And so they had a, a tablet. And they had a whole bunch of names, and they finally came down with this friendship one, and, and that's the one they picked out of all these different potential names. Mm -hmm. That's the one I thought was the best too. So that's couldn't be couldn't be better. So my kids, uh, be better. Yeah, so my, my kids actually named it. So that's that's right. The light on light through podcast. And I'm Paul Levinson back with you after that conversation. That was really something, wasn't it? 
If you'd like to find out more about the Touching the Face of the Cosmos anthology, probably the best way to do it is just type that into uh, Google or any search engine with quotes, Touching the Face of the Cosmos. It'll bring you to the original call for papers, and then right below that, you'll find something that says Current Contents. So you can see all the various essays and science fiction stories in addition to the interview with John and Annie Glenn, which will be in the anthology. And again, that anthology will be published later this year, with any luck, in early November of this year. And also, with any luck, I should be back here with another episode of Light on, Light Through before then, Probably some review of a movie or television show. Probably not the Astronaut Wives Club. Anyway, in the meantime, once again, I'm Paul Levinson. Enjoy. <laughs>